Welcome. My name is Mike. I am a priest at the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion in University City, Missouri. And today we will be going through an introduction to the question, what is the Episcopal Church? This is part of our parish's pilgrimage class, but if you've stumbled upon us, welcome. We're glad to have you. I want to talk for a little bit about the question, what is the Episcopal Church? This class is designed for folks who maybe don't have any background or experience in our tradition, maybe coming from Roman Catholic or Lutheran or other more reformed evangelical traditions. What is it that makes us Episcopalian? Well, to start to answer that question, you need to know that the Episcopal Church comes from the church in England. That's where we trace our roots, back through English Christianity to the time of Jesus. And so a lot of what we'll talk about is some English history. And you need to know that at the beginning of the Christian movement, England was a long way off. It was a long way off from Jerusalem. It was a long way off from Rome, which was the center of power in that time in the ancient world. And so England was a bit of a frontier, a bit of a long way off. And from the very beginning, there is this sense that England is a context that is difficult to control. Augustine gets sent up by Pope Gregory to England, and there were already Christians at the time, but Gregory tells Augustine famously that he shouldn't burn down and destroy the pagan temples in England when he goes up there to be Archbishop of Canterbury. He should instead try to Christianize the local custom. So there's this sense that we are always a Christianity that is in context. And it's also this sense of Christianity interfacing with the questions of colonialism, with going out to places. And that'll be very characteristic of English Christianity. England was a place where there were a lot of debates um, over everything from the date of Christmas to the way worship should take place. And there are a lot of strands of Christianity in the early days in England. Everything from the uh, Abbey of Iona, where Columba brought Christianity to Scotland, uh, to much more Roman-looking things that come later. And so there's a little bit of tension, there's a little bit of debate, there's a little bit of difficulty built into English Christianity. And it gets us toward what we like to call Anglican comprehensiveness. If you take one word away from what it means to be an Episcopalian, let it be comprehensiveness. That is to say that the church in our tradition has, for as long as there has been Christianity in our movement, been trying to comprehend, bring together diverse elements, bring together diverse ways of being. And that continued at the time of the Reformation. Um, pretty famously, the Anglican tradition, Anglican just means English in Latin. So the Anglican tradition uh, is founded by King Henry VIII. You know the King Henry VIII, I am, I am song. Henry famously wanted a divorce from his wife and the Pope wouldn't grant it. 
Before that became a political liability for Henry, he had been stalwart in support of the traditional Roman church, stalwart in his support of the Pope, up until the Pope wouldn't grant him the divorce that he felt he needed to continue his political dynasty. And so there is this tension. Henry wasn't going to go the full reformed way. He wasn't a reformed person. The Pope had granted him the title Defender of the Faith. Just this last week, Queen Elizabeth II was buried, and at the reading of her titles, that title was still read out, Defender of the Faith. So Henry declares himself over the church in England, and he takes his Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Thomas Cranmer, and they begin the work of separating English Christianity from Roman Christianity, but they don't go the full way of the Reformation. And it's, it's difficult. I mean, you may know the history. It goes back and forth for a while. Henry's daughter Mary brings the Roman Catholic Church back in after his son Edward, uh, Edward was a very uh, was a child when Henry died, and so Cranmer and others tried to take the church in a more reformed direction. Mary brought them backward, and it doesn't really all settle out until the time of Henry's daughter, his second daughter Elizabeth. And something called the Elizabethan settlement takes place, and this term via media starts becoming the way of describing Anglican Christianity the way in between, between Reformed and Catholic, the middle way uh, between the two poles. And we can talk a lot about a middle way. Um, the theologian Richard Hooker is really the theologian of Elizabeth's time. Uh, and Hooker kind of creates this idea of the Anglican middle way or third way of being. But it also comes down again to this idea of comprehensiveness. Elizabeth I, like Elizabeth II, reigned for a very long time. Uh, and during her reign, things are able to settle down a little bit with all the back and forth that had been happening in the English Reformation. But it's not exactly like everything settled completely down. There were folks that had more Catholic, more sacramental mentality, and there were folks that were very reformed in their mentality. And if you know things about English history, you know that it, it kind of goes on from here. There are times when the more Protestant traditions are in ascendance and times when the more Catholic traditions are in ascendance. Uh, and at the time, the church just tries to hold things together. This comprehensiveness it's a new, um, new dimension here in the United States. When the United States, when the colonies have a revolution, there are hundreds of Church of England churches in the colonies. We were the established church in many of the colonies like Virginia. We were seen as the representatives of the king. Samuel Seabury, who's the first bishop in the Episcopal Church, actually gets made fun of in the musical Hamilton about the revolution because Seabury uh, thinks that we should all stick with the king. So the Episcopal Church is here at the beginning, at the time we were just the Church of England. 
There's a particular figure at the time of the revolution, though, who was not like Seabury. He was with the Continental Congress, a priest named William White. He was the rector of Christ Church in downtown Philadelphia, an important church at the time, still an important church today. It was Ben Franklin's church. And White was the chaplain to the Continental Congress. And White, in many ways, is the architect of the Episcopal Church as we have it today. Uh, White decides, for instance, that in the Episcopal Church, rather than having bishops appointed from on high, uh, the king appointed the bishops in the Church of England, uh, that we would elect our bishops. Uh, White organizes the church into a bicameral legislature. Wonder where he got that idea. We vote together on doctrine in the Episcopal Church. And it's a tense test of these, this comprehensiveness uh, in a way because the Episcopal Church eventually finds a way to stay in what we call full communion when we fully share communion, we fully view ourselves as part of the same vein of Christianity as the Church of England, as the Archbishop of Canterbury, but we are self-governing. And we are the first totally self-governing province of what becomes the Anglican communion, the Anglican family of churches all around the world. And so in the Episcopal Church, we call ourselves Episcopalians rather than Anglicans because of the revolution. Uh, Anglican would just mean English Christians, and we were establishing ourselves as separate from the Church of England. So we pick the Episcopal Church to say Episcopal just means church with bishops. Our governance includes bishops, as opposed to Presbyterians, which starts with elders as the form of governance. There's not an overseer above. And so we have a bishop in Missouri. His name is Dion Johnson. Uh, he's right here in St. Louis. His cathedral, the seat of the bishop, is downtown. So we include bishops, but bishops have somewhat limited authority in the Episcopal Church. Congregations govern themselves to a degree. We come together as an elected body at the diocesan convention to work with the bishop. And then we have a church-wide gathering every three years. And the Episcopal Church causes Anglicanism to be more comprehensive. We include self-governing churches in a number of regions like Central America, Mexico, the Anglican Church of Canada, the Anglican Church of Southern Africa. Anglicans grow through British colonialism and through the expansion of um, separating churches, uh, like the Episcopal Church separated from the Church of England, we become the third largest body of Christians in the world after the Roman Catholics and after the Orthodox. Now, in the United States, we're nowhere near the third largest denomination, but worldwide, there are about 80 million Anglicans, which makes us a pretty big church. And it is a diverse church. We try to hold a lot together. Now, that legacy of colonialism is a part of who we are as Anglicans. It's part of who we are in the Episcopal Church. Often the Anglican Church has been the church of the colonizers, but not always. The church gets stretched again in the post-colonial period. Perhaps the most famous Anglican after the queen herself in the 20th century was Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu won the Nobel Prize 
for peace, for his work against the apartheid regime in Southern Africa, in South Africa. Uh, he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Obama. After he retired from being the Archbishop of Cape Town, he went on to be a worldwide known celebrity and peacemaker and worker for justice. And Desmond Tutu likes to say, um, there's an old story about the missionaries. When the missionaries came, they had the Bible and the people of Southern Africa had the land. And the missionaries said, close your eyes, let us pray. And they opened their eyes and the people had the Bible and the missionaries had the land. It's a joke about colonialism, right? But, but Desmond Tutu likes to say, but it underestimates the power of the Bible. He said, without the liberating story of Christianity, without the gospels, without the sense that Jesus is on the side, that God is on the side of the poor, of the oppressed, of the misfits in history, there wouldn't have been a struggle against apartheid. A post-colonial theology is part of what Anglicanism now has to comprehend, has to hold. The religion of the conquerors, of the, of the colonizers, becomes the religion of the people and the religion that helps set the people free, all in one church. In our own country, this is also true. The Episcopal Church was, in many ways, the church of the powerful. There have been more Episcopalian U.S. presidents than any other denomination, even though we have never been the largest denomination in the United States, we have had the most presidents. We have had a lot of powerful and important people, a lot of wealthy people in the tradition. We, at the time of the Civil War, even had a Confederate general bishop. The Bishop of Louisiana was a general in the Confederate Army. The Episcopal Church was the religion of the slaveholders. And it was a church in which people worked for freedom from slavery. It, there were many black congregations. There were black leaders like Absalom Jones. We are also learning to celebrate some of the saints in the Episcopal Church that might have been looked over in centuries past. One in particular is Polly Murray. Polly Murray, for a long time, was celebrated as the first black woman to be ordained in the Episcopal Church. Before Polly was an Episcopal priest, Polly was an attorney. Uh, Polly's paper, her, her graduate thesis from Howard Law School, was the underpinning of the argument that won Brown versus Board of Education. And she was friends with Thurgood Marshall, another Episcopalian who argued the case. She was friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She helped to, to found the National Organization for Women. Uh, Polly was an important uh, person in the work for civil rights. And she actually produced a book. She spent a year of her life researching. She was actually paid by Methodist church women for this one. But she spent a year of her life researching all of the Jim Crow laws in the South and putting them together in one book. And this was before you could just look up laws online. She put all the segregation laws in the South in one book. And Dr. King called her book the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement 
because it helped them figure out what they needed to challenge where. When Polly Murray challenges us to see more comprehensively, to see the importance of the black church in the life of the Episcopal church, and Polly Murray challenges us even further. In recent years, uh, as Polly's letters, her private letters have been made more public, Polly has pretty openly been identified as queer. Uh, several of the most important romantic relationships in Polly's life were with women. And Polly wrestled with gender. Uh, her name at birth was Anna Pauline Murray, and Polly chose Polly. Uh, Polly lived in a time before we had our ways of talking about gender and pronouns, but probably the best guess are that Polly would have had a complicated relationship with pronouns. Polly often referred to herself as a man in her letters or feeling man-ish. So the inclusion of the LGBT community is a part of this Anglican comprehensiveness. The Episcopal Church was one of the earlier denominational bodies to wrestle with the inclusion of LGBTQ people, uh, one of the first denominations to ordain and to marry LGBTQ people, um, marry people of the same gender using the same ceremony that we do for uh, mixed gender marriages. So we continue to be challenged to be comprehensive. There are parishes in the Episcopal Church that don't have LGBTQ marriage. They won't marry people of the same gender. And there are dioceses where that's not common, even just right across the river from St. Louis where I live in the Diocese of Springfield, it's a much more traditional place on these questions. And it's not likely that very many places are going to celebrate same gender relationships. And the few parishes that do have a bit of a strained relationship with their bishop. But yet we try to stay in the same church. We try to say comprehensive. Part of that comprehensiveness has meant that Episcopalians don't have, Anglicans don't have, like our Lutheran siblings or our Presbyterian Calvinist siblings, a fixed sense of doctrine. There's no Luther's short catechism. There's no Westminster confession in our tradition. We have the ancient creeds of the church. We'll talk a little bit about the creed in a later class on Eucharist. But I find it interesting that Anglicans have had to hold together some pretty diverse beliefs in Christianity. I had a professor in seminary named Tim Sedgwick, and Tim Sedgwick used to say that the identity of the Anglican tradition as a form of Christianity is not a matter of confession or beliefs, but a way of life that is given in the church. What does it do to our Christianity to say that belief is something about which we can debate and have questions and hold slightly different than our neighbor in the church, but that what we mean to be Christians means that we share a set of practices, a set of practices. Over the course of this course, over the course of pilgrimage, we'll be looking at practices of prayer 
at practices of generosity, at practices of gathering as community for worship, we'll be looking at ways in which we practice our faith. What it means to be an Anglican means that you are sharing a tradition with people that you may not always agree with everything about. There may be some fundamental disagreements within our tradition, and yet we can break bread together, and still we can pray together. The Jesus movement, as our presiding bishop Michael Curry likes to say, the movement is big enough, the church is wide enough that we can still pray together, we can still act in service to our neighbor together, we can still advocate together, we can still share a table together with people with whom we disagree. That is the bet of Anglican comprehensiveness. So as I said, if you take one thing away, being an Episcopalian, being an Anglican, means that at times, it's not exactly easy to nail down exactly what we believe. But being an Episcopalian, being an Anglican, is about sharing a space, sharing a church with a wildly diverse cast of characters. When we are at our best in the Episcopal Church, the diversity of the church challenges us to spread our arms wider.